Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Animal Chat with me, Harry Ekman. And me, Matthew Payne. Hello, Harry Ekman. Hello, Matthew Payne. What's going on there in Blighty? In Blighty. Well, as you well know, everyone, we've got the vaccine and you haven't. Uh, So, uh, first of all, not only am I not in the elite, I live in Scotland, so there's fuck all chance I'm getting that vaccine anytime (laughs) soon. Um, But yeah, Harry, how are you? How are you, sir? Doing very well. Watching with great envy across the sea to my homeland, vaccinating its elderly and infirm and frontline workers and, um, you know, hoping nobody else dies in the meantime. Yeah, it is a major landmark in history, I suppose. But let's just hope it gets rolled out successfully. I mean, it's no first episode of the Animal Chat podcast. Oh, no. Moment in history. No. no. But, you know, it's still, it has a place. They tried. If you're going to thumb through the history works, it's worth acknowledging at least. Hey, Harry. Yes. We need to thank somebody. We do. Tani Ushka. I hope, Tani, that is how you say your surname. Forgive me if it isn't. I am literally terrible with names. I remember I used to work with somebody called Siobhan from Northern Ireland, and I called her Shioban. <laughs> I used to pronounce that Siobhan. Are you old enough to remember the band Banana Rama? Well, I've heard of them. Like, I've heard of other relics. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the girls in that was called Siobhan. And at the age that I was when Banana Rama were big, which is like 10 or 11 or something like that, I saw her name. And obviously, Banana Rama, you kind of like have a crush on them. And I liked Siobhan. <laughs> I had a crush on Siobhan. You tell your friends, oh, that's Siobhan. <laughs> Siobhan. If I ever see that Siobhan. <laughs> oh, who's your crush there when you were growing up, before we thank Tani? Uh, Olivia Newton-John. Good call. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I didn't objectify women, so, you know, but there you go. <laughs> hey, he walked into that one. Charlie, actually, Billy Piper, funnily enough. Um, Billy Piper? You know what? If there was ever an indication of the age gap between yeah. us, Matt, <laughs> there's a two-decade gap yeah. between our childhood crushes. Oh, my God. Um, so, Tani, sorry about that, Tani. We just want to say thank you, Tani. Tani reached out to us to say... She said our podcast is awesome and it helped her survive COVID in Australia. Matt, she did um, say that. She said it helped her survive quarantine, not COVID. It's not the same thing. We okay. didn't vaccinate her with our podcast. And then she basically went on to say how inspiring we've been. Um, so, yeah. So, um, thank you, Tani. Really appreciate that. It was a lovely message. And honestly, I'm going to speak on behalf of you here, Matt. When we started this podcast, we've said this before. It was about sharing stories and hoping that they would inspire people as much as they've inspired us. And the fact that you reached out to us, Tani, and I'm sure there's other listeners out there as well that get inspired by these stories in the same way. But it was just so lovely to hear that back and know that this little podcast has inspired a few people. And especially in this weird and difficult time that we're living in now, there's a really nice message. So thank you. Yeah, I mean, it kind of leads nicely on to our guest this week. And the reason I say that, because when we started this podcast, we've talked about this numerous times, but when you start this sort of thing, you sort of say, well, who should we talk to? Like, who can we get? And you have the people we know, and there's people we've met, like Melissa two weeks ago, or Leah Garces, or Brian Faulkner, who you know very well, Harry, and Laurie Marino. Tim Harrison, yeah. Well, no, no, Tim Harrison was one we was, I mean, you've just ruined the link, Harry. But <laughs> Tim Harrison, we also had people who, who we didn't work with, like Tim Harrison, who were kind of like, we've got to go and ask them. And 
that was also the thing for like Paul Watson, yeah. for David Meech, for these people who Harry and I really just wanted to talk to, but we'd never met. And this week's guest is one of those people. Now, so if you work in the dog industry and you're listening to this, you know how excited I will be speaking to today's guest. This is the sort of person that within the dog world, people absolutely love because she's so well respected. And it's I think Lassie, I... isn't it? We're interviewing Lassie. <laughs> <laughs> star of stage and screen if you know the dog world if you know the dog world they don't get bigger than lassie i'll be I honest with you it's kind of a one-sided interview <laughs> yeah she had much depth to her answers funnily enough um so <laughs> yeah so um i so <laughs> Flawed me a bit. Uh, right, come on, Matthew, come on. be a professional. So, um, so this week's guest is Alexandra Horowitz. So, Alexandra Horowitz, who is a cognitive scientist, lives in New York. She has a BA in philosophy, but she also has a PhD in cognitive science. She lectures at Bernard College, which I think is part of Columbia University, but she teaches um, psychology, but also dog behavior and dog cognition as well, I believe. And She's an academic, but she's more well-known for being an author. And she's written, for me, some of the best, if not the best books on dog behaviour and dog cognition. And she really kind of made her name in, I think, 2009, I think it was, when she released Inside of a Dog, which was her first book. And it was a New York Times number one bestseller. It was on their list for 64 weeks. Fantastic um, book. Which it's such a good book. The reason why I love this book is because what she does is she has a way, first of all, of writing that is so accessible. And I think when you get into academia, I think some people maybe sometimes struggle to make complex things simple and accessible. We talk about stories. And at the start of every chapter, she tells a story. And I will read one of these at the end of this podcast. Um, <gasps> I oh, know. I can't even do it in a Geordie accent. I won't. But she has these little short stories that are just so heartwarming and lovely. And they're literally just like a paragraph. And then they introduce the chapter that she's going to be talking about. They're so accessible. They're so easy to read. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. It's just, it's so good. And it brings people in. And she does not do many things like podcasts that much, really. Um, no. So to we get her. super, super yeah. lucky to get her. And the idea that she's talking to us, that is so strange to me. I don't know about you, Harry. Like, it's just yeah. weird that she got to The talk only to reason could be is that she hadn't listened to previous episodes of our podcast. I know. And I sense halfway through this, you hear in her tone, she's regretting this decision. Oh, it's not even halfway. Really? I think when we were introducing ourselves, she yeah. realised. She realised that, you know. But I'm... being the professional that she is, she Total. she powered through it and she made the yeah. best of it. Yeah, exactly. She is a professional. So, um, you know, uh, she carried us, Harry. Let's be honest. Let's not beat around the bush. <laughs> <laughs> As our guests always do. Um so I'm sure when you listen to this podcast, you will understand why myself and so many people are such huge fans of Alexandra Horowitz. So sit back and enjoy this podcast. So this is the Animal Chat Podcast with the awesome Alexandra Horowitz. One 
one thing I thought that might be quite a nice start is to thank you personally for bringing into my dog walks. I've got a very lazy Labrador and a very adrenaline junkie Cocker Spaniel. And the things for my walks tend to be quite hectic. Things getting rolled in, eaten, jumped in, splashed. But the one thing that you brought into my dog walks I wanted to thank you for was the smell walk. Mm. So when we are walking uh, by two beautiful dogs from your wonderful book Inside of a Dog, where you recommend that people go on a smell walk themselves to know what it's like to be like a dog, People now walk by seeing me picking up flowers and sticking my head in bushes while these two dogs are running riot. So I wanted to thank you for that experience. For people around you thinking you're a little bananas. But I I think that's just the thing to do is to start to, the way to begin to appreciate living in a slightly sensorily different world. So I admire that you're doing it and that you're letting your dogs sniff, you know, I wonder, as you say, as you're describing there, walk, it seems to me almost walk is the wrong word, right? You're not, yes, you exactly. are, we think we're going for a walk, really, but you just described all the other things that are happening, the rolling or the sniffing or the jumping about and mayhem. sort of, yes, the mayhem, let's go out for <laughs> yeah. our mayhem, is more apt and also helps us get into the mindset of what is important for the dogs in that time that you spend together outside. Yeah, I think you also say allow for his dogness. Mm. And my partner and I, we always chat about if we were to have any sort of dog themed activity or anything outside of work, one of the strap lines would be let dogs be dogs. Yeah. And I love that, allow for his dogness. It's so important. And it you can tell, I mean, my dogs just benefit from all those things. Like you say, walking is just not the right term, is it? Yeah, it doesn't capture all of it. And you're so right. You know, the dogness is something that as actually legal owners of dogs, we tend to forget about. You know, we tend to want to push away. We tend to want to kind of civilize and and mute. And so just the glimmers where that can come through, or if it can come gloriously through on one of these mayhem outings, I think that does a lot for their well-being. Yeah. One of the things that I've been very lucky to experience over the last four years So just before I met my wife, she rescued a French bulldog from a horrible breeding situation. Mm. This pathetic, sad, farmed dog. And the joy that I've had, that we've both had over the last few years, kind of picking up on exactly the wording that you use there, was watching her learn to be a dog. Because when we first got her, she wasn't. She was this broken soul and really wasn't displaying the things that I'm used to seeing a dog be in many ways. And so seeing her learn to sniff and learn to experience the outside world. I mean, it took her three years to discover that she loved to dig Mm. and to roll. And the first time that she suddenly discovered that and you could genuinely see the joy on her face and this new experience in the world is something that's been really lovely. And and certainly from my point of view, being able to witness it has been nice. And doing the smells as well, I, I have to say, as Matt was saying there about him walking around and sniffing stuff. And I had this vision in my head of just kind of walking around. And and I imagine if I did it to the same degree that it's playing in my head, that I would be very familiar with the smells of all the other dogs' urine in the neighborhood. Yes. I'm kind of picturing, I'm trying to hope that I could catch up with my dog. And in the same way that she recognizes who's who, maybe I could, I could achieve the same feat. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, actually, our noses are not so bad. uh, So we could take their lead a little bit more. It's just we have all these biases about 
what's disgusting, don't we, as mm. in a smell. And dogs don't seem to have the same biases. And I find that interesting, too, that we kind of close ourselves off to even imagining that something could be more than just a bad smell and instead have information in it, have identity information in it, you know, be about someone. Actually, I think we do know this a little bit. So you might know like the smell of your wife, um, which is to say mm. nothing about your wife, except for she's a human being that has <laughs> like, all of us, you know, odor and, and we grow familiar with our partner's odor. And if it were a different smell, suddenly it would be unusual and maybe even alarming, right? Mm -hmm. So we kind of unconsciously do this. So to transpose that into the social world of dogs where they're so much more intimately equated to each other's smell is a beginning. And by the way, thank you for your observations about your dog growing into their dogness. I think that is lovely to watch and must be so edifying to feel like they had the space to do that with the both of you. Yeah, absolutely. For people that may be not familiar with this idea of the world through the senses of a dog, and obviously their olfactory senses are their primary one. What does that world look like for a dog? For somebody that is kind of new to this and suddenly thinking, wow, I never quite realized that that was so important to a dog. What does that world actually look like from a dog's point of view? Right. I mean, first of all, it's a very big question and something I'm still trying to answer, but your way of asking even kind of starts us off, doesn't it? What does it look like? Mm. So we're visual creatures. Mm. And as we open our eyes in the morning, you know, the world is there. We see it. It just appears in front of us and we don't even imagine that it is in any other way, right? It just is like that. But certainly dogs' vision is fine, but I think that when they open their eyes and nose in the morning, they're smelling the room. They're smelling what it looks like. And that room will be drawn in a very different way. You know, light and odors work differently to reach our eyes and nose. So light just instantly appears and the room is there in all its glory. Odors appear more intermittently. They might appear on a air current coming in from the other room or coming up from the baseboard or from under the door or from in through the window. Odors might be resting on the ground something that happened or someone who was there hours before will leave an odor trace. So the smells of the room are not just instantly continuously there, like the sights of the room. And so you can imagine that a dog waking into that slightly parallel sensory universe needs to be a little more active to see the room than a visual creature. You know, they'll start sniffing about. They have to start to investigate things. My dogs don't greet me across the room with a hello. You know, they come up and sniff me right in the face in the morning. And I think that's, that's how I am there for them. That's how I sort of, they see me in the morning. So you begin to redraw these things we see visually as much more fluid and not all one unified image. Then you start to see into the dog's world of smell a little bit more. One of the tip that I've stolen from you, Alexandra, is the not bathing your dog every day. Not that I did that, mm -hmm. but not trying to leave them without a bath for maybe getting them to smell like a dog for as long as you can stand it, I think you say. Um, just <laughs> yeah. while we're on a, you know, the idea of smelling and stuff. I thought it'd be a good point to bring this up. Just for those, again, like Harry said, who maybe this, who are not too familiar with this, why is that so important for dogs? Well, the dog's identity is in their smell, really. And so we all will have noticed that the dog's behavior after a bath 
is to usually what to roll around in something which kind of gets that smell off of them because the whatever agent we're putting on is it you know a coconut lavender shampoo is a kind of extra additive that does a bit of work to conceal their actual smell and their identity when they go and interact with other dogs has to do with who they are via smell so i think they don't want that mask they don't want that cover and we do them a little bit of a benefit by not making them take it off every time. I don't actually know what's wrong with the smell of dogs, frankly. I think <laughs> that it's a lovely smell. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it's I what agree. it is. I mean, it's an honest smell. And so I enjoy it. Is that weird? I think it's mostly that I've started to imagine smells as just information about the world rather than having to have a valence, rather than having to be something delicious to eat or delicious to smell or something horrible. I don't think you need to worry, Alexander, after Harry's, he wants to smell other people's urine <laughs> anecdote. No, it wasn't other people's thing. urine, Matt. Listen, Harry, you said it now, it's it out was, there. It was other it dogs' urine, there. it wasn't other people's urine. That's a whole different podcast and a different <laughs> conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what podcast that is, but yeah, I don't exactly. Know. <laughs> oh goodness, yeah. But I think this also it seems to maybe link back to us wanting to get dogs to fit in with our lifestyles. And mm-hmm. I'm really interested with the idea of commodification with dogs within the role that I'm doing in my work. And I just feel that yet again it's another way where we want a dog, but there are certain little things that we want to sort of take the edge off, like the smell like certain aspects of their behavior we want to try and change in order to get them to maybe fit into our lifestyle or not make the house smell when we get visitors coming in Mm -hmm. or things like that. It it seems that this is just another example of us trying to manipulate or trying to just dampen down dogs in a way so they're more suitable for the modern lifestyle. Yes, and I think there's something in that urge which is not wrong. That is, you're going to interact with other people and other people have different experiences or interests in dogs and someone who says I'm just going to let my dog jump about on everybody who I encounter is maybe somebody who's themselves being socially difficult right and the dog is sort of the agent on the other hand part of our viewing dogs as property as ownable objects I think does lead into the commodification as you say the sense that they should be a product with certain values and the values include being easy to deal with, right? You can sort of put them away. Um, You can tamp down the things which are annoying to us, which are difficult to deal with, which we find rude or disgusting. And that's a whole range of behaviors, not just sniffing, but mounting, Mm -hmm. being just explosively energetic, right? In times when we don't want them to be energetic. So all of these sort of things that a sentient being brings to the table are things which when you view them as a piece of property that can be bought and sold, people don't want to have to deal with. You know, I bought my dog. I don't want it to be a nuisance. I don't want to have to do things for it above and beyond just keep its company. I think that's the attitude that is inherent in the way we tend to buy and sell dogs. And I think it's insidious. Mm. I think it's really interesting um, you mentioned that, Alexandra, because I'm doing some research on this at the moment. And in the UK, there's a real issue with, well, I don't know if I can describe it as an issue, actually, it's just a reality, that when people acquire a dog, particularly a specific breed of dog, they have an anticipated idea of what they want that dog's their relationship to be with that dog. It's sort of like a perceived image of running through the hills with a dog or, you know, like sort of this <laughs> romantic vision. 
And actually, when they get a dog, in particular, you know, some of the more demanding breeds that aren't going to fit into certain lifestyles, that causes so much emotional distress for both the owner and the dog. And that people in the end end up coping and changing their lifestyle slightly in order to try in their heads cope with the behaviours that the dog starts to exhibit. And people don't tend to realise that you can modify a dog's behaviour. You know, they tend to think that training is very much sit mm. you know something for puppies you know sits um all those sort of can't you know, give me a paw when actually people have a lot of behaviors they wish to change in their dog but they actually would rather cope with it rather than actually ask for help when it particularly doesn't end up becoming the ideal dog that they'd wanted it to be mm-hmm. but i think you also point to the fact that this notion of the ideal dog or whatever the notion whatever the expectation was that they were coming to the relationship with is misconstrued right mm, and exactly there really has to be a lot more education and understanding about the whole life cycle of dogs and who they are as beings before you embark on that relationship, you know, where you have a very dependent animal on one side of the relationship. And then on the other side of the relationship, you have this animal who has unrealistic expectations. And just to start like that seems to me difficult, especially, you know, with breed standards suggesting that It's in standards, but also just in the literature about breeds that dogs are going to be reliable in certain behavioral ways. You know, you get a certain kind of dog and you have a dog who's good with children, something like that. And so then you imagine that this dog is going to immediately understand the nature of erratic, bizarre, very touchy children and not have any reaction except for pleasure to it. And that's unrealistic. So it does a disservice to characterize breeds as being reliable in that way, as though you're buying a, a new car and can add the specs that you want. I want a sports car or, you know, that can run with me, or I want a, just an easygoing station wagon where everybody can just jump on in, jump on that dog, and then the dog is undisturbed. You know, there is no dog like that. You know, that's, a, that's a conceit. Where do you think this, you used an interesting word there that I was thinking about before, expectation. And it seems to me that in the last, certainly in the last couple of generations, If you think back to when I was a kid and before, I used to watch, you know, Lassie films and things like that. And Mm -hmm. the perception of a dog then in a a less urbanized environment, it wasn't unusual for dogs to actually be more doggy. You know, Mm -hmm. it's the lovely story of the dog that then walks into town and goes to the butcher shop and interacts (laughs) with people and picks up a sausage and all this kind of stuff. And that was a very romanticized view of a dog, but there wasn't anything seen as wrong with that at the time because that's how dogs were. And in some parts of the world, that's how dogs still are. But that expectation of dogs has changed, certainly in Western societies, so that there is more of an expectation. There is more of a like a checkbox of what you want the dog to do and what you don't want the dog to do. Because it's happened in a fairly short period of time. Mm-hmm. Where do you think that's come from? Actually, now that you mention it, I do think that it's evolved coincident with and maybe as a result of their being ever more folded into our family, right? They're becoming mm. not just additions to the family, right? But members of the family, which most people who own dogs appear to think their dogs are, right? Members of the family. When you're folded into the family that deeply, not a dog who you put outside or keep outside, who has their own life, Mm. who you love, but who is at some level a visitor to your daily life, to the minutia of your daily life, you're not as concerned about that. But when they fold it into the family, then you have the expectations that you have of other people in your family, which is, 
you know, that they all um, behave in a civilized way, take each other into account, types of things which persons take many years to learn to do and many years of schooling to be socialized into human society. And so I think maybe it's maybe it comes from that. So it's a kind of accidental result of what is, I think, usually a very good move for the species, which is that we we love them so much, we care for them so much that they're as dear to us as other people in our family. I think that it brought to me a question that when I mentioned to colleagues that you were coming on, a really good friend and a colleague of mine called Maria, she works with me in the department. There was a question she really wanted to ask you. And as you were talking then, I think it's a really nice question to ask now because looking at all the sort of the amazing books you've written about all the different aspects of dogs and dog behavior and all the other issues associated with them, in your opinion, what's the thing that you think dogs would most wish their owners knew or understood about them? Like that principle, fundamental issue that means that so many dog owners, they're not getting it right, however loving or good intentions they have, but it's the thing that dogs would wish that their owners knew mm. or understood a little bit more about them? It's, it's such a good question. Um, it's a good question, isn't yeah. it? She, that's why I thought I'd answer yeah. it. Um, usually Maria comes out with absolute rubbish. She <laughs> this, but that was actually quite a good question. <laughs> um, uh, well, it's an interestingly formed question too, right? So it kind of imagines yeah. that, it imagines something that I want to question about the relationship, which is that, it is kind of an equal relationship. So we're doing things for our dogs. We want the best for them and we love each other. And we sort of feel like we're exactly in on it together. And so the question comes from a place of imagining sort of the human relationship where they're partners and each one wants to be able to say to the other what they really need, right? I just want to like bracket that a little bit and just notice that it comes from that position. I can try to answer it in that position, but I wonder if that's really what the way it is actually, you know, or is it that they, they're very reduced in the relationship, frankly, compared to our status in the relationship. And they aren't really even in a position to ask us what they need because we're so Mm. dominant in every aspect of their life. We're so controlling in every aspect of their life. So just to bracket that, but to get to the actual very nice question, I mean, I think it might have to do with smelling, certainly, you know, not suppressing all the smells in the world for them, right? Our smells, disallowing them to smell, finding it rude if they sniff deeply into another dog's fur, you know, disallowing that, suppressing that, I think, is something that most people really don't get. But also just the varieties of communications that are happening all the time from dogs to us. We sort of think of them as as silent, except for when they're very much not, right? We're annoyed at their vocalizations, (laughs) right? People are mostly annoyed at their vocalizations, which are just communications of various sorts. And then there are all these other communications happening all the time to us that kind of go unresponded to, right? It might just be an Mm. appeal to have some attention or to go for a walk or to sit closer or just to tell us that something else is going on or that they don't want to be touched or that they're hungry or, you know, they're just, they're constantly making little gestures to us and we mostly ignore them. It might be a gesture like my dog coming up and just looking at me while I'm sitting here talking to the two of you. And I might look at him, but whatever his communication was, I don't think it was nothing, but we can kind of go about our days ignoring it and thinking, oh, you know, if it gets to be a big thing, if he really needs to go outside or he really needs attention, then I'll deal with him. But why not deal with all these other subtle little conversations, just this kind of 
chatting with each other and, and checking in with each other that we do with other people in our household. I think that might be something they'd want us to know about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree totally. And I, and I think, unfortunately, like I said, I've got a, a cock spaniel on Red Bull um, <laughs> who <laughs> anything, she has to be in your face screaming at you, <laughs> telling you what's going on. Um, I wish she was a little bit more, uh, I wish I could ignore her. Let's just say that. Um, but I wonder but... about that a little bit, Matt, because usually, I mean, there are, of course, highly amped up dogs, but there's often something that precedes it. And maybe it's it's just very slight, right? You know, but yeah. there's the moment between sleep and Red Bull. There's at least a moment there. Yeah. And in that moment <laughs> yeah. might be like some gestures that in a way you don't have to do. That's the time you feel like, okay, I get a break from the demands or the excitement or whatever it is. But actually that might be the moment when you can respond to their subtle requests, right? That they're more, yeah. and maybe there's a way to like open up that space a little bit more. So that's what I feel like. We only notice their communications when they're big. They're loud, they're barking, yeah. they're, you know, my dog comes in and suddenly he's jumping on me. That's when I start listening. But why didn't I start listening when he just came over and looked at me? Because that's when he started telling me something, right? Yeah. So you got that directly from Alexander Horowitz, Matt. You're a terrible <laughs> dog owner. I say, the invoice is on oh, the way. No. 9,000 pounds for that one piece of advice. <laughs> I mean, we all knew it. We all suspected it. But now it's... Absolutely oh, controversial. <laughs> <laughs> my um my cocker spaniel always interrupts every single Zoom meeting. Honestly, Zoom with her is a nightmare. <laughs> the other day I I sort of left my chair with Zoom on with a colleague. I went to go answer the door, I got a delivery. And she jumped up on the chair, but she's got very spiky sort of blonde hair. Mm. And all I could hear my boss say is as soon as she saw my screen was, why is there a toupee <laughs> on that screen? <laughs> because she just saw this sort of spiky blonde hair sticking up. But every single meeting she destroys. She just, uh, but I am going to, I'm going to be watching now, Alexandra, after that. Um, <laughs> that but... <laughs> Not many people get to get that sort of advice. So I'm, oh. uh, you know. Oh my goodness. Yeah. No, I mean, she's telling yeah. you that, not me. Follow her. Yeah. <laughs> that actually makes me think of something else because what Matt said before about when he told his colleagues that he was speaking to you and I've done the same thing and got the same response from people I've told is that you are somebody that is very much looked at as one of the experts in this area, somebody that people admire and, and respect hugely. And from your point of view, you know, you've been very influential to a lot of people. Who were the people that influenced you? Mm. Where did your journey in this come from? Who were the people that inspired you down this route and who you look back on in the same way that I imagine many people look at you? Mm. At? It's interesting to imagine being in that position, actually, because I, oh, you know, I still feel like I know so little about dogs. You know, I'm, I'm always still learning myself. So, but maybe that's always the case. I can think of a number of people who influence me. You know, the very first one I think of is somebody who didn't study dogs at all, but who was a, a kind of cognitive scientist and was interested in, and this is why I think if I've had some influence, it's because of this, who's taking a science and also making it uh, readable and unusual. And that was Oliver Sacks, somebody who I had, I had mm. the chance to know a little bit for a few years before his death. And I just loved the way he brought a science to a broader audience and his ruminations mm -hmm. on it. And it was his personality that infused the science and made it something to be fascinated in. And so I feel like at some level, 
he was a mentor in thinking about how can I use the science of dogs and how can I almost reconfigure the science of dogs to make it something that fascinates me and would fascinate others in a new way. So there's him. And then within the dog world, you know, I wouldn't have gotten started with dogs if there hadn't been Mark Beckoff, who, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. biologist who studied all sorts of different species, wolf, coyote, domestic dogs, play behavior. And when I was doing my dissertation work or wanted to do dissertation work in play and realized that I was going to start looking at dogs because I came with the concept first and the subject species second, I went to him and said, can you help me see dogs, observe dog behavior. And he did. And also was part of my thinking about how behavior is connected to these sophisticated cognitive states. And that's what got me studying dogs. And, you know, so he wasn't studying dogs in the same way then that I am now. But were it not for him a little bit showing me how to see, I don't think I'd be as good at seeing them and then observing them and then writing about them and and communicating about their worlds. Are there any other scientists right now that you really are inspired by or whose research you're really keeping a close eye on? There's so many, actually. I mean, the field, if we just talk within dog cognition, which I guess is my real field, I'm, I'm very moved by the people interested in cognition as it relates to welfare and well-being. And so, you know, you have in the UK, you have Nicola Rooney and John Bradshaw, who have been doing this for a long time. But they're always coming up with something new. It's always worth reading whatever new thing they've written. And I love that. I'm very interested in the people doing genetics, Lucy Escher and Eleanor Carlson. And so that's an entirely different way of looking at dog behavior. But to get a fuller understanding of who the dog is, that's very fascinating. I'm really interested also in people who are studying non-dogs but are looking at cognition or looking at welfare of farm animals or of other owned domestic animals like cats, because they're, that always gives me an interesting insight to how I'm studying my species, looking at how somebody who has a slightly different species is addressing their point of view. Then there are people in applied animal welfare who I think are just so sharp. I have a colleague and friend at NYU, Becca Franks, who is interested in fish Mm. welfare. And that's very inspiring. And it's It's just eye-opening to see people from different disciplines, slightly different disciplines or slightly different subjects, dealing with some of the same issues, and it inspires my work. So you're inspired by somebody who used to work with cats but now works with dogs. Is that what you're basically saying, (laughs) Alex? Somebody who works for a big dog charity. I mean, don't put any words in my mouth, but yes, of course. No, I mean... Maybe people that do podcasts, just, I mean, if we're, oh, that's embarrassing that that came up. I feel really embarrassed now. She would be saying that. I feel really embarrassed Clearly now, your, but... your dog wouldn't be saying that, as we've yeah. already uh, yeah. agreed. But... People are going to think I put that question in there. Just, oh, that's embarrassing. Um, so, uh, sorry about that, Alexandra. We hadn't prearranged that. Um, yeah, I, I think... The way in which we communicate with the general public, you know, we do all this amazing research, but actually how we sell that narrative Mm -hmm. and how we create stories is of equal importance. We've spoken with other guests like Leah Gar says about this, who know the importance of narrative. And I just wanted to see whether, was that a conscious decision? Because I know for me and for my partner, it was one of the things that, you know, reading about your wonderful dogs and things like that, it was such a, you could relate to it. And I just wondered whether you did that knowingly or sort of purposely, or is it something that just happened organically? I don't think I came to it with an understanding of 
what makes a successful narrative. But in retrospect, it was the obvious thing to do. I mean, I wear hats as a person who lives with dogs and as a person who studies dogs. And those things influence each other. You know, seeing my dog's behavior influences what I want to study. What I study and what I find influences how I deal with my dogs and what I see in them. So they're interwoven. They couldn't be extracted. It would be an artificial thing to just write about one without the other. So I think that just that comes naturally. And it, I do think you're right. It can be a very successful narrative structure because other people want some way into the material. And why are people reading the book? Because they have relationships with their own animals and that's their way into it. So if we can connect on that, then I can pull people further into the narrative and be more interested in the science, which maybe they thought is just isn't relevant to them or doesn't apply or they haven't thought about it. They haven't sat down for a long time and thought about it creatively about how it applies in their life. So it makes sense. I think it was successful in, the, in retrospect, but it wasn't planned. It was just it's just what comes out right when I start talking or writing about dogs. You mentioned something just before, Alexandra, about the people that influenced you. And you mentioned uh, people like Becca Franks. On the last season of the podcast, we had Laurie Marino, on, mm -hmm. who was studying cognition in dolphins and cetaceans. And I was curious as, as to your thought, because it was one of the things that we discussed with her as well, because I know that you've talked about the idea of dogs having a sort of autobiographical view of the world in, in some degrees. And taking that a step further, from the research that you've done and, and your observations, picking up on Laurie's work of self-awareness, is that something that you see demonstrable in dogs? What level are they self-aware in the way that mm -hmm. we would might perceive it or understand it? I think that their self-awareness is wrought in smell, right? Mm. So it is a little bit different. I mean, hence getting back to that bathing your dog all the time question. They're wearing their identity and their smell sort of as we recognize ourselves visually. And this might seem like a superficial understanding of oneself, right? If I never saw myself in the mirror again, I would still kind of have a sense of self, right? But mm. it is an example of where we see the sense of self manifest. If when I look in the mirror and I make adjustments to my hair or get that spot of something off my face. Mm -hmm. I'm acknowledging that I'm myself moving through time and I should look a certain way. I think they are as well, but just with smell. And so I did get to study that a little bit to see if they noticed when their smell had been changed. And they did seem to notice that even though they're not as focused as we are with their image in the mirror, when they got a kind of smell image of themselves, they notice when something's changed. So that's an acknowledgement that, you know, I should smell a certain way. I have smelled a certain way over time, and this is different. And that interests me, or I need to investigate that more, or I'm worried about that. Now, is it a full autobiography that's brought out of this self-awareness? Not per se, but to have an autobiography, you do have to have a sense of oneself moving through time. And, you know, all sorts of actually very normal behavior that lots of people who live with dogs would recognize is evidence of they're kind of remembering their own experience over time, going to find the bone that they've hit away in a particular place last year, last season, something like that, is this sense of self, sense of their own story and remembering a place in their past. And maybe even having planned in the past to go and find it in the future, right? So that's a self over time. And I think you see lots of examples of that in ordinary behavior fewer in the lab. There haven't been as many tests in the lab in mine or others. For whatever reason, the kind of autobiographical memory hasn't been as well tested in dogs. It's tricky to test 
but I have no doubt that it's there. I think a really important question for us to ask you, Alexandra, would be about that small thing that's happened called COVID. Um, Mm. Here in the UK, we've seen quite a large increase in the adoption of or the purchase of puppies. And also with people spending more time at home now. And we know the research in the UK with dog bites increase when kids tend, you know, the weekends or in the summer holidays. And there's all these other sort of issues that are happening or potential problems in the future with this whole change of environment almost through COVID. That wondered whether it was something you were thinking of or is there any sort of research that you're thinking of looking into or anything you're concerned about with the current situation? Oh, yeah. Well, there's always lots to be concerned about, isn't there? Um, I guess the first concerns that come up have to do with, I mean, although it's, of course, a testament to this importance of dogs in our lives as companions, this rise in dog acquisitions, one wonders if people are going to be prepared to deal with those companions when they're a little bit older or when things resume, veer towards normalcy, if, if in fact they do, and we're leaving them alone for long periods of time and so forth. So that's concerning. There's also the problem of the fact that many dogs wouldn't have been well socialized mm. because they were not getting out, you know, and their people were not getting out. And even when they met other dogs, people with dogs were sometimes reluctant to have dogs have any interchange for fear that they were vectors or just out of generalized concern of being in proximity with other people. But that socialization is so, so important for young dogs. Mm. And if they didn't get that, then we're going to see a lot of problems later on at whatever level socialization among humans normally resumes. So there's some concerns where, as it happens, I also added another puppy to our family in this time. So I feel like I was implicated in the wash of acquisitions (laughs) because... We have two older dogs, Finnegan and Upton, and had been interested in adding some younger energy to the family. But I'd never met a dog from the very early days. So I'd been following litters to try to know a dog from from their birth, basically. Especially tricky because I was interested in a mixed breed dog. You know, I, I love mutts. So, and that's hard to catch, right? You, know, you just have to find a dog that's gone and had their own mating arranged and and find the mother when she's giving birth. So we adopted a dog at 10 weeks who I'd known since she was very little. And she went through a lot of these things that I imagine people who are less invested in thinking about dogs went through with their dogs. And it's tricky. I feel like there's going to be a rush of relinquishments and kind of misbehavior onto the dogs, right, as a response to their perceived misbehavior. So it's all in my head. You know, in my lab, we're thinking about you know, where we just study own dog behavior, but we're doing everything remotely. We're thinking about how we can play with some of the current situation to get more owners involved in our studies. We can now, since our studies are all remote, we can talk to people in in lots of different countries and try to get some cross-cultural information about different cultural dog behaviors. And that's kind of an interesting upside for us as researchers where usually I have to, you know, have a dog come into the lab or observe a dog in the parks. But we're still working out what we're going to study there. So those were a lot of thoughts and maybe not coherent. Maybe this is where you could do the editing to make it. (laughs) We'll interject a couple of appropriate questions so that there's three distinct answers. Thank you. (laughs) But you actually brought up a really interesting point there that I wanted to follow up on because it's quite related to the work that I do. So the work that I do with dogs is very much 
roaming dogs. They could be owned yeah. roaming or they could be street dogs. They could be community dogs, but it's very much the places where it's less about ownership other than people in communities that just allow their dogs to roam are more about the general community attitude towards dogs and the problems that are associated with that. And one of the things that we do a lot in the work that I do is very much trying to find dog population management solutions that work alongside a community. So that there's community ownership. So all of the issues that people have maybe with a perceived overpopulation of these roaming dogs, wherever they've come mm -hmm. from, whether they're seen as a nuisance or a danger, or in many places, they're just seen as part of the fabric of the community and they're not even paid that mm -hmm. much attention. They're just there. But when we're trying to work with communities where it's been identified as an issue for whatever reason, from your perspective, when we talk about people being dog owners, there's an investment there. Like people are hopefully interested in their dogs, in their behavior, understanding them better. And the benefit for that is if you understand your dog better, then, you know, you can build that relationship. But for these communities where these dogs are just there and present, how would you imagine engaging with a community so that they could see the value of the dogs that are there in a way that that they aren't just seen as a nuisance, that they are mm -hmm. kind of seen as a positive, as a benefit, as a good thing as part of the community? That's a really fascinating question. And I think a tricky one to answer. My perspective would be that even if people aren't owning dogs, depending on the community, there probably are a lot of people who are invested in some way, right? The dog is part of the day. Maybe it's just the dog as a backdrop to village life. Maybe it's that they feed the dog or they expect to see dogs at certain time of day as the dogs go through the course of their days. So there's some sort of reliance on or counting on the dog in their life. And so there is a little bit of daily investment in the presence of these dogs, right? And there might be a relationship there. And so that makes me think more about how we have a relationship with proximate wildlife. Mm. And for wildlife, I think the trick is usually to be labeled as wildlife, whose life we can admire, right, versus pests who are intruders, basically just wildlife that is interfering in our mind with our lives in some way. So if they can get on the kind of wildlife side of that spectrum, essentially, right, mm. just the way that I enjoy the migrating birds that pass through, I mean, I could view them as a nuisance, right, because they're messy or they attract other animals and maybe I don't want those other animals. But there's a great beauty in watching and being a part of their daily life, mm. right? Even as they go about their life, not under my control, not under my constant supervision. So to me, it would be a sort of reimagining them as a special kind of wildlife, maybe, who you get to see during the day, who you get to interact with. I totally get what you're saying. and uh, I couldn't agree more. And it's a conversation I had recently with somebody. So one of the other areas that I work in is cat welfare as well and doing trap neuter release projects. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I love the most about doing that is to be able to be out there and observe colonies of cats and observe their behavior mm -hmm. and see almost, I mean, it always occurred to me that people will travel for thousands of miles and go on safari and watch lions and see them as you know mm -hmm. a wild animal and you're observing their behavior. And yet you could see very many of the same behaviors just by observing a colony of right. feral or semi-feral cats. And so transferring that onto dogs as well, I think absolutely. If we were to reposition our perception of these kinds of dogs and see them in that way, I think that would be incredibly beneficial. I mean, I think that's so right, Harry. The 
way I entered into studying dogs was by just observing the behavior of dogs at play with each other. And although these were all owned dogs who were brought to dog parks or beaches or places where dogs could interact, and I was often one of those people, my dog accompanied me, so I didn't just seem like the creepy outsider videos <laughs> taping other dogs' behavior. <laughs> I... <laughs> we trust you. We trust you on that. We'll have to believe A dog you. is a great key of entry. But it was observing them kind of as a foreign species, right? Mm. That was when I started to see them as, imagine them as unrecognizable. And that was so important in thinking about dogs. I mean, it's these preconceptions that we have about who they are, which gets in the way to seeing who they actually are. Is it similar to an animal which we would admire seeing out in the savanna, for instance, right? When I see a population of coyotes near where I live, I watch them from a respectful distance, admire them, and I'm glad that they're co-present with me, right? And so the fact that a wild, free-ranging dog would tug at a slightly different string, the sort of, this is a pest, this is a nuisance, means we have to find a way to get people to kind of see anew, to mm. see the animals anew. And that's actually the best thing that could happen for dogs, even in the owned dog case, it seems to me. It's, again, getting back to the expectations we were talking about before, these preconceptions that stand in the way of us seeing what dogs are really doing and who they really are. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Just occasionally when we do these podcasts, Alexandra, there comes a moment where I want to ask something, but I have actually no idea how I'm going to ask mm. it. And it's this about is where to happen the now. Comes in. So <laughs> this is where Harry's magic comes in. I'm going to try. I know what I want to ask you, but I don't know how this is going to come out. So something that I'm really interested in, and as you were talking through this, I've, I've kind of wanted to just pick your brains on it. It's going back to the idea of commodification with dogs and something that I think, particularly in the sort of animal welfare charity sector that we're a little bit behind on, is understanding the environment that dogs are experiencing online with families or people that wish to get what I call social media capital from. So they'll put dogs in compromising positions, mm -hmm. either, you know, with a baby holding it or in bed with a child in order to get the capital from that image and therefore, you know, creating a risky situation. But this is also going to people getting certain breeds for social media capital, for image capital, and also the role of influencers mm -hmm. and the knock-on effect they have on the wider public's dog ownership habits, if that's the best way to okay. put it. And I just wondered, in a really awful way, I kind of want to ask, what's your thoughts on that? But I'm going to try and put this in a way that makes me sound a little bit professional, uh, which is going to be very you hard. You can try so, doing um, that, Matt, but I'm just going to leave that first part of the question in. <laughs> <laughs> a guy called Simon Harding here in the UK, who's done quite a lot of work with, he refers to them as weapon dogs, but they're more commonly known as status dogs. He talks about this and the way they're treated, you know, how some dogs are swapped in some communities for shoes or for a computer game. You know, they're treated as a commodity. And it did get me thinking that often we speak disparagingly about those communities and there's a little bit of class. It's more of an issue in the UK, but a sort of, you know, they tend to be more working class, so therefore we stigmatise the way they own a dog. But actually, I think when we look at social media and the way in which people treat and use dogs. And Harry and I spoke about this on a podcast a couple of weeks ago, you know, with videos with kids hugging dogs and people sharing them online because they're cute, but the dog is clearly stressed and that's going to potentially lead to an accident. I just wanted to sort of see how you felt about that in terms of the role of commodification, but particularly social media. And I will stop asking. <laughs> I think I got the question, even though you didn't know how to ask it, but you know, I empathize because I never know 
how I'm going to answer a question, right? So uh, <laughs> we'll just see what comes out. I, you know, I, oh, I mean, I very much feel that um, it's destructive. Those every time someone shows an image of a dog being hugged by a baby to share how wonderful their dog is, or their baby is, or their lifestyle is, or the dog human bond is, you know, I absolutely cringe. And I, one could mm. think that just this positive exposure for dogs, right? People feeling good about dogs and thus wanting to share them in their Halloween costumes or with sunglasses and a sun umbrella, mm. just sitting by the pool, that at some level that's just showing that they care about their dogs. But I feel like it entirely misses the boat with dogs and further perpetuates these images, gets these images into our heads that in a very contagious way. So it's really dangerous because, you know, one sees one golden retriever being hugged by a baby. One assumes that my golden retriever could be hugged by a baby. And, and of course, then we see the rash of golden retriever biting baby in the face incidents. I think there are two ways to kind of address that. One is head on, you know, I, I'll take Shutterstock photos of sweet, <laughs> ostensibly sweet images and kind of try to say what really going on there and instead push forward my image of the dog's reality in those situations and hope that that is contagious in the same way. And the other is actually just to step back from those and just plunder ahead with my <laughs> perspective and not address them and not be constantly talking about the evils of putting your dog in a costume and so forth. Because I think the thing that's appealing to people about that is that it's very pleasurable, right? They Maybe they even get monetary satisfaction from it, but they at least get personal satisfaction from this feeling that they got this like really cute object that they can appendage, that they can go around with in costume. And I find dogs hugely pleasurable as well, just an entirely different way. So better for me to push forward with my dogness of dogs image. And I think it is contagious when you put that forward, right? I mean, that's what my books are. If they've had influence, it's because that is also contagious and it doesn't have to be anti the other. So I'm torn between which approach to take. I will point out, though, that so that I don't sound like I'm entirely immodest, that, you know, I also rely on an owned dog population. I didn't buy my dogs, but I own them. I exist in the same reality as all these other people who are treating dogs differently than I want them to be treated. And I often stop and think about that and reflect upon how I get to live with dogs because dogs are things which we can own and do with as we want. And what does that mean for the message that I put forward? What would it be like if it were different? If really the change that needs to happen is not that people don't put their dogs in costumes, but that we don't own dogs. Mm. What if that were the change? I mean, so I want to keep my eye on that as well. I think that's really interesting. I think from a, a behavioral science point of view, I think there's so many options. I tend to agree with you when you were saying, I think there just needs to be a little bit of nudging or a little bit of supporting people, empowering them, enabling them, or however you want to word it in terms of an intervention that, you know, they're going to want to share images of their dogs to get some sort of reward or status from Instagram. They're going to do it because that's the nature of things like Instagram. It's just getting them maybe to do it in a way that doesn't compromise both the dog's welfare or the welfare potential injury to their child or themselves. But it's an exceptionally complex thing. And I, and I think sometimes I feel maybe in the UK, we could do a little bit of a better job of that, just being at least part of that conversation. Mm. 
whereas it seems to be so far away from the rehoming adoption sort of approach. But one question I really wanted to ask you, what's the thing that surprised you most about dogs Mm. throughout your career? I think in general, how little I knew about them, even while I was living with dogs. Ultimately, I think it's a testament to their kind of flexibility that one can be completely naive about dogs and still have a long-term relationship with them. And yet, I'm still finding things to unpack about my dogs. I mean, how long have I been looking at them? How hard have my dogs been looked at? Very hard. And yet, I still am learning about them. So I think that is surprising. And then all the things that you find, right, are surprising as well. The things along the way, the seeing, seeing time in smell, smelling time, essentially, the ways our anthropomorphisms really fall flat. Those things have surprised me. But I think overall, it's just my level of ignorance starting out with dogs as a person who just lived with dogs as a normal person and how much I hadn't seen them and how much there still is to see. One of the things that for me, every time I take my dog out, Matt and I, we've talked about this before. One of the things I love most about having a dog is the when you see a dog go out and roll and sniff and dig and experience the world in the way that only a dog can, there is such a profound sense of joy in seeing that Mm -hmm. absolute pure in the moment enjoyment of the world. And it doesn't matter how many times I see it or do it. That's one of the things that I love the most. Do you still, in all the work that you do and, and the levels of understanding that you now have, is that still something very present for you, that sense of joy of dogs that they bring? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Just, you know, I mean, of course, they're my own dogs and just the pleasure of seeing them in the morning. They're the first people I talk to in the morning. Just I'm happy to see them all the days. But also dogs I don't know, seeing dogs, especially off-leash dogs running around doing their thing. Mm. It moves me, right? That is my happy place, essentially, watching other dogs being able to engage on their own terms. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And or and my own dogs just seeing the breadth of their behavior from from sort of being very close and intimate and snuggling with us to going bonkers, running zoomies around each other. Each of those, or even just catching, you know, a smell on the breeze and pursuing it, mm. as one of my dogs will do, seeing their normal behavior is totally delightful. It's just very edifying. Yeah. I always describe it that my dogs bring joy into my life. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're walking and the Labrador's rolling in poo or he decides <laughs> to jump in something and then my cocker spaniel wiggles its bum <laughs> um, at people. So, like, if people come, she goes to ground because she knows you can't possibly drag her in public. <laughs> and her bum just raises and starts wiggling at people and, like, you can see people's heart melt. Tails are very good, aren't they? Yeah. They did a very good <laughs> oh, job with the, the tails. Best. A plus yeah. on that. Yeah, just seeing dogs can make people delighted. So that's, isn't that interesting that that's the case for all of us, even though we're all, you know, that we sometimes look at difficult phenomena of dogs, Mm. that they still come out being Mm. joy bringing. So that was the Animal Chat podcast with the awesome human being that is Alexandra Horowitz. Fantastic. Fantastic. She was, you know what, we were talking about people who work with dogs and how respected she is. But even if you're kind of new to dogs or dog behavior or dog cognition, her books are just 
some of the best out there, aren't they? Yeah. Some of the absolute best examples of knowing about dogs, understanding dogs, being able to see the world from a dog's perspective. And like you said at the beginning, just such a brilliant read. And she was so good to talk to. Yeah, from the podcast, hopefully you'll get that she's such she's got such an engaging personality. And I think what makes her such an incredible writer is her ability to translate that into her writing, which is not easy to do, I think. But Harry, guess what? Next week is the last episode of the second series of the podcast. We're going to be going away for a while. A lot longer than last time, I think. Yeah, hopefully not too long, but a little bit longer. Yeah, next yeah. week is going to be mm. the last episode of season two. And we have a cracker to end with. A Christmas cracker, if you will. Yes, we have a Christmas cracker of an episode. I'm not going to tell you who it is because we decided we we're going to stop doing that a while ago. But yeah. a lot of work goes into these, mainly on Harry's side because he does all the amazing editing. And, you know, we're going to have a bit of a break, have a bit of a reflection on what we want to do in the third season. Yeah, we're going to come back in 2021 with a third season and hopefully some even more or equally fantastic guests exactly. as we've had already. So, also though, Harry, if anyone yeah. wants to ask us anything... They want to know about us. If you want to know anything, like, what's Harry's favourite film? What does he like to put on his... Don't answer the questions, Harry, because that ruins the point of view. What does he spread on his toast? What's his favourite tipple? No, does he wash his hands after he goes to the toilet? Who knows? You know, all these things. If you want to ask us a question between now and the last episode that you've always wanted to ask us, like, what does Harry's... What's he even look like? You know? Um, Who knows? Kind of ruggedly handsome, but strangely feminine at the same time. (laughs) Oh... Like a weird little fellow. <laughs> exactly. um, but if you've got any questions to ask, get in touch. I mean, most people have stopped listening by now. But if you haven't and you've kept on listening for my little reading, what we can do maybe, Harry, is end the podcast with me reading it. How about that? How about we end the podcast before you read it? No, 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 no. Because this is... Alexandra gave us permission to read a little intro from her book. But she didn't know you were going to be the one to read it. Oh, yeah, no, no, it's fine. I used to be a teacher, so I used to have to do this for a living. Oh, really? Yeah, I hadn't mentioned yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, for seven years. Um, so we're going to put links to Alexandra's books in the podcast. They are amazing. I'm going to end by reading her prelude intro from her New York Times bestseller, Inside of a Dog. But she's got loads out there. Go buy them, folks, over Christmas. They're amazing. In fact, have you done that Smile Amazon thing, Harry? We have, yeah. Christmas, if you're going to buy gifts, put Change for Animals Foundation. Just saying, Harry is remaining humble and silent. As always. But, listeners, settle back, because it is time for a Christmas reading of a paragraph from... Which book is this from, Matt? Inside of a Dog. Take it away, Matt. We're all all eager to have you finish. First you see the head. Gotta get through that, Harry. We can't say it. Right, I'm gonna get through it and go straight away to the next sentence. Are you sure that you're reading the right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) This is a New York Times bestseller. We need to have the respect it deserves. First, you see the head over the crest. (laughs) I'm gonna do it properly now. Maybe put yourself on mute. First, you see the head. Over the crest of the hill appears a muzzle drooling. It is, as yet, not visibly attached to anything. A limb jangles into view, followed in unhasty succession by a second, third, and fourth, bearing 140 pounds of body between them. The wolfhound, three feet at his shoulder and five feet to his tail, spies the long-haired chihuahua, half a dog high, hidden in the grass, between her owner's feet. 
The Chihuahua is six pounds, each of them trembling. With one languorous leap, his ears perked high, the wolfhound arrives in front of the Chihuahua. The Chihuahua looks demurely away. The wolfhound bends down to the Chihuahua's level and nips her side. The Chihuahua looks back at the hound, who raises his rear end up into the air, tail held high in preparation to attack. Instead of fleeing from this apparent danger, the Chihuahua matches his pose and leaps onto the wolfhound's face, embracing his nose with her tiny paws. They begin to play. And thank you very much. That was... Heartfelt, moving, emotional. Bearable. I mean, it's no Tom Hardy <laughs> reading bedtime stories on Jack and Ori, but uh, it'll do. Oh, Jesus. Um, that was beautiful, Matt. Thank you very much. Next week, the last episode, tune in. Tune in, and thank you for listening to this episode. Thank you for listening to all the episodes. Don't forget to like, subscribe, listen, share, and all that business. But in the meantime, have a good week, and see you on the next episode. Bye, everyone. <laughs>